Howdy, partners. You're listening to Conversations with Jacob, hosted by my good friend, Jacob Waller. Make sure to check out the podcast where podcasts are available and check out the video version on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. Facebook is Conversations with Jacob. Twitter is at CWJ Podcast. And you can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. Hey, you got a show idea? Maybe a guest suggestion? Email us at conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Jacob Waller. Another episode of Conversations with Jacob. Uh, we got a good episode for you today, and we'll be talking with with, uh, with Jim with us here in a second. But before we get to Jim with us, I, I want to tell you guys about the podcast real quick. Uh, which our podcast airs every Monday at one o'clock uh, p.m. That's uh, that's on the Eastern uh, time zone. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Conversations with Jacob on YT. Twitter is CWJ Podcast. Our podcasts and platforms include iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, and every once in a while you can find the podcast on YouTube. If you got a question, a guest suggestion, just want to say hi, you can send you can email our mailbag, conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Just put in the subject line, you know, what you're trying to look for or trying to you know connect with, I guess. You can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. You can find upcoming episodes, past guests, and also a little section called Post from the Host. And joining me today uh, is Mr. Jim Wittes, who has a little bit of camera problem. So, Jim, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. I can see you just fine, Dick, but I guess you can't see me, so that means you're probably better off than me. (laughs) Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so Jim, uh, before we get deep into the interview, can you give us a little background on who you are? I am a uh, retired uh, Protestant minister. I was in ministry for 40 years, but I was most of that time was always part-time because I was also a musician and a carpenter and a college professor and within the last 20 years or so, a writer. Uh, when I retired from Christian ministry, I had a bit of an epiphany, to tell you the honest truth, <laughs> Jacob. I wanted to uh, to do something a little different. You know, when you go into ministry early like I did, I'm back in 1971, I was in seminary. And we all had the idea that what was going to happen was when you uh, go to seminary, when you get out, you're going to join this community of people who were interested in spiritual growth and spirituality. And uh, it was going to be kind of a wonderful existence of growing together and seeing everybody and and, uh, answering each other's questions and being on this spiritual quest, a kind of a search for the Holy Grail, I used to call it. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> when, when you're a when you're a minister, you're the CEO of a small company, even though it was mostly just part time, like I was. And you discover that most people don't go to church, especially back in the '60s and '70s when I was starting out to uh, to join a spiritual community. It, it's a social thing, something you do. And you get so busy. You're, you're planning meetings. You're planning church services. You're, 
it, you're, you're, you're doing seminars, you're teaching. And for instance, in my case, I was also a college professor teaching world religions. And so I, I had the, the cream of the crop in terms of students. I mean, let's face it, nobody takes a course in a college course in world religions unless you want to. You, know, you don't have to. So uh, with me, it was just a kind of an idea of, uh, of always having to put off my own spiritual growth. I was just so busy, like we all are. You join, you have a job, you got to do the stuff you need to do. And so even though I talked a lot and, and, and taught a lot about God, I discovered at the end of my ministry that I, I wasn't experiencing what I call now the holy, uh, at all. And, uh, I, well, yeah, I did from time to time because during, I, I would pray and, you know, counsel people and do all the stuff you do. But it wasn't the kind of relationship that I wanted. I wanted to experience God. I kind of figured, you know, in the Old Testament, if, if God can appear to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those people, why couldn't God appear to me? And in my whole ministry, aside from a couple of times when I obviously saw something at work that was from the other side, uh, people having near-death experiences, for instance, and then I was privileged to be there and having them come back and tell me what they saw and all this kind of thing. Um, yeah, there were some wonderful times, and it, it, it was great, but... It, my day-to-day life, I just didn't feel like I had achieved what I wanted to achieve in my life. So when I retired uh, oh, 16 years ago now, I decided to do something I always wanted to do. I always, I was always an outdoorsman. I hunted and fished all my life. I don't do that anymore, but I used to. I, I figured I'm going to go out to the woods, and I'm going to build a house back in the woods, and I'm going to go on retreat for one year, and I'm going to wrestle with God. I uh, even had a Bible verse in mind uh, that comes out of the Old Testament book of Genesis when um, Jacob and uh, Esau, the two brothers, had been, uh, well, let's say they had a falling out and Jacob had to run way up to what is now uh, Anatolia, Turkey. And when he was coming back to reconnect with his brother, it had been years now. And uh, he didn't know what was going to happen. He just knew that the next day they were going to meet. And he was on one side with his family on one side of a river. And Esau was on the other side. And uh, Jacob was up pacing the wall, the, the up and down like we all do when we're nervous and anxious and anxiety-filled. And uh, he, a, a man showed up on the river, on his side of the river. And strangest thing in the Bible, Jacob started wrestling with him. And they wrestled all night long. And as the dawn broke, Jacob realized he was wrestling with God. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that was my mantra when I retired. I, I had a prayer in my mind. God, I, I, I'm going to wrestle with you. I will not let you go until you bless me. So when it came time to retire, I took early retirement at age 62. And I'm 77 now. And I figured I'm going to go on a retreat for one year. And I went out to the woods of South Carolina, the backwoods. I had to build a road back to where my house is now. I built my house, just a small house. And uh, I was going to say, I'm going to live back there for one year. And I'm going to go on a spiritual retreat. And I'm going to wrestle with God and saying, "You, I will not let you go until you bless me. And long, lo and behold, my, uh, my prayer was answered. Uh, I met God, not in the Christian context. The, I met God through probably the world's oldest religion, through a, a paganistic shaman expression, shamanistic expression. 
And I still call myself a Christian um, because that's my home, but I interpret Christianity in a totally different way. I'm sure many of my old Christian friends don't figure, they figure I probably left the fold, you know. Um, I I have to tell you what happened after I came out here, though. Uh, after with that expression on my face, I will not let you go until you bless me. Um, I was asked by a group in Cornwall over in the U.K. to go and give a uh, uh, a seminar on uh, the uh, basis of world religions. And so I went over to Cornwall and had a wonderful time with them. But while I was there, and I'd never been to, the, to uh, England before, and uh, so I had to go to this little English village called uh, Fenny Compton because it's up northwest of uh, London. And I had to go up there because... Uh, that was where my spiritual, my, my great, 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 great ancestors came from. They used to be ministers in the Church of England. And the church where they preached is still up there in Fenny Compton. And uh, I went up there and met a historian from the town, and she got me into the church, and I was able to stand in the same pulpit where my great ancestor used to preach before he uh, his family left and came here to America. And this building was still there. The stone church was still there. And the same stained glass windows were still there. And I stood in the pulpit and saw this one stained glass window that you can only really see it well from the pulpit of the church. And lo and behold, it it depicted in this stained glass window, Jacob wrestling with God, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. I want to tell you, the hair stood up on the back of my head. I couldn't believe it. Somehow, the the spiritual genes of my great, 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 however many great grandfathers was passed down through the centuries. And little did he know that his ancestor, his descendant would someday uh, retire from ministry just like him and have that prayer. I will not let you go until you bless me. I gotta believe God's got a sense of humor. But I came out here, I was gonna live in this house for one year and uh, just experience the changing of seasons. I was gonna try to find God in, in the woods all by myself. And that was 16 years ago. And I'm still here, going strong. I've written something like, I don't know, 16 or 18 more books uh, since I've been out here and had the time. Um, a lot of it based on ancient civilizations and uh, ancient gods and lost civilizations. Um, I just uh, recently sent in a book to uh, Visible Link Press. They'll be bringing it out next year on near-death experiences. I uh, I wrote a book, uh, probably my best-selling book right now, is a book called uh, uh, The Quantum Akashic Field, which is a, kind of a spiritual guide for astral travelers because I started having out-of-body experiences when I was here. I learned how to douse, and I've done a lot of dowsing seminars and that kind of thing. And all of that came because uh, I retired from ministry, and I said, I will not let you go. I'm going to wrestle with God. Turns out God wrestled back, and... I feel very content in a lot of ways that uh, religion isn't uh, the big focus nowadays. I don't even like to use the word religion anymore. I use like to use the word spirituality. But um, I was I was very blessed to be able to do that. That's that's pretty much who I am. Absolutely. Now you got a book out called A Cosmo and Me. I gotta yeah. ask. And who is Cosmo? Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a spiritual autobiography. Uh, it occurred to me that as I look back on my life now, more than well, almost eight decades, but the last seven decades when I've been uh, since my childhood, it occurred to me that almost every 10 years, uh, 
people who were spiritual seekers, like I've been all my life, searching for my own metaphorical holy grail, the, every 10 years, the spiritual climate has changed in the United States. Uh, the 50s was different than the 60s. The 60s was different than the 80s and different than the 90s and all that. And so I wanted to look back and, and try to delineate what that was like. And so I stopped using the word God a while back because it, when I use the word God, I'm still comfortable using saying the word God. But I'm I'm not as comfortable as I was because I'm not sure that when I say the word God and people hear the word God, there we're talking about the same thing. It, it almost seems as though people have a different concept of God, and so they assume that when I say God, I must be talking about it in words that they understand. So I stopped using the word God, and for a while I used the word cosmos, but that seemed kind of big and impersonal, so I switched it to cosmo. Um, cosmo to me is that it, it equals my definition of the word God, but you can also use the word source. Uh, you can use the word consciousness. Uh, you can use, uh, the Indians used to use the word Manitou up in New England where I came from originally. Um, it's, it's the idea of uh, that other that's uh, separate from us. Uh, Hindus have a beautiful way of saying it. They have the concept that they call Atman and, and Brahma. Um, Brahma is the inexpressible uh, idea for the, the great mystery behind it all. Consciousness or the source. You can't define it um, in Hindu tradition. If you try to put the word Brahma in a, a word box to try to define it, uh, words fall short because obviously words were written after <laughs> you know they weren't on this side of our perception fence and they can't describe what's on the other so they use the word brahman to mean that uh, inexplainable inexpressible idea of the source the great mystery but they also use the word atman which the closest word that comes to it in english is probably the word soul uh, and so Brahman is the out there and soul is or Atman is the in here. But the great uh, breakthrough of the Hindu rishis came when they said uh, thou art that that Atman and Brahman are the same thing. What's out there is also in here. And so when I talk about Cosmo and me, a seeker's journey from religion to spirituality, I'm talking about my evolving relationship with God, basically, who I now prefer to use the word cosmo. Uh, and I, I knew I was onto something that it wasn't just in my life this was going on, because uh, David Campbell and two other people wrote a book called Secular Surge um, a while back. And they said that now 30 percent of America is uh, defined as what they call the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. In other words, they're not part of anything. Um, religionists and non-religionists and secularists and uh, the idea of people looking for something that's spiritual without necessarily being defined by any special religion. So that's what I mean by Cosmo and me. Uh, it's my search decade by decade over the last seven decades of that great mystery that uh, from which we come and to which we return. Now, you've written a lot of books, Jim. Um, 
And what prompted all of this to happen with you writing the books? I wish I knew for sure. <laughs> uh, it, it, it seemed like something I just had to do. Uh, I had written a couple of books earlier. I had written my, my very first book was just written for the fun of it. Uh, it was called Journey Home, The Inner Life of a Long Distance Bicycle ride, Rider. And because of that book, one of the editors at Visible Link picked it up and they were looking for someone to write a, a, a book that they wanted to call the religion book, which was just kind of a one volume encyclopedia of world's great religions. And uh, so they called me and I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. I already had a good start on it because when I was teaching world religions in college, I had a pretty big glossary built up already that I would give to my students of um, meanings of all these different terms that we were going to use in class. And so that became the genesis of it. I wrote the book, uh, religion book. And then um, I just seemed to take to writing. And some years later, especially when I retired and had time to write almost nonstop up here, I felt I had something to say and I just wanted to say it. And so I started writing and I became obsessed with this idea that we live in a particular culture that has somehow traded wisdom for knowledge. Um, we have a lot of knowledge nowadays. We can do a lot of things. I mean, everything from nuclear energy to the Internet to tech and all that kind of stuff. But along with knowledge, just because we know a lot doesn't mean we have wisdom. A uh, classic example, for instance, it, it, you would look what we're doing to the environment. And it's very obvious every day that goes by, especially this summer, uh, what's happening. Uh, we have, we have um, learned a lot about how we could do things, but we don't do them. We have the knowledge of how to change things, but we don't know the wisdom. And you can say the same thing for politics, uh, for economics for religion, um, all of these, in, in all of these areas, we have a lot of knowledge, probably enough knowledge to get us through, but we don't have the wisdom to use that knowledge. And as a result, people just hate each other. I mean, in politics, the left and the right, liberal and the conservative, they hate each other. Religions hate each other. Even in particular things like science, who where people are supposed to be open-minded and, and ready to receive all this information. Uh, one group believes in this, uh, in science, and the other believes in something else. And rather than just argue the science, they attack, attack each other's character. Um, to be a string theorist nowadays is to, you know, I've heard scientists actually stand up and say, string theory is not only wrong, anybody who believes it is stupid. Well, what kind of <laughs> attitude is that, you know? And so I said, I've, I've got to write about this. And that was one of the things I wanted to do about Cosmo and me in my book, Cosmo and me. I, I wanted to show how this developed decade by decade over the last seven decades of American history. Now, you wrote a book called American Cults. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that book? I'm almost regretting it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the only people who – I mean. Uh, in that book, I, I wrote about American cults because through my whole life in the ministry, uh, I've been involved with a lot of breakout cults that started as Christian groups. And then they went by the wayside. You know, everybody from Jim Jones to um, Jim Baker to uh, um, David Koresh and all the rest of them, they began as Christian ministers. 
And then they got a, they gathered a following and people began to think that they were not only preachers, teachers, but God, you know, and look at happened to Jim Jones, took his whole group down to Guinea and how many hundreds of them committed suicide down there drinking, drinking the Kool-Aid when it was broken up. And so I, I, I can't say that I've enjoyed um, working in, in cultic groups and with people who have been victims to cults. But it it certainly was there. And so um, I'd love to say there was some kind of great honor in it. And I said, oh, I'm going to expose all these things. But that wasn't it. Actually, what happened was a publisher called me and says, hey, you want to do a book on cults? Here's your advance money. And I said, sure. So <laughs> I, I did it. Um, but that's that's what happened. Uh, and I wrote this book. And although I wrote about all these different cults, I mean, going back in American history, ever since the pilgrims who were once considered a cult in the old country. And I wrote all. But along with that, I happened to write about some modern day cults. And I happened to mention uh, some groups by name that uh, I didn't particularly call them cults. But I said they use cultic methodologies to attract and keep their their membership growing and all this kind of thing. And I guess the only people who read books about American cults seem to be um, right wing crazies. <laughs> and uh-huh. as a re- as a result, I, I almost regret writing it now because, I mean, I've had people, you know, it's pretty easy to try to bully someone from your computer. So I've had people write to my website and. Oh, people respond to groups I've been in saying, you know, this guy is a, a radical left winger, obviously, and he doesn't get our part. And I'm one guy threatened to show up and drop a pineapple on my front yard. And I'm sure he didn't mean a fruit. I'm sure he was talking about something else. And, and you know, and I, I didn't mean to come out and, 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 you know, try to bring politics. And I was just talking about groups on all sides of the political spectrum that use cultic methodologies. But apparently some of the very violent ones, uh, they're the only ones that read these kind of books. And you go on Amazon right now and you look up American cults and there's one, uh, one, one person wrote about American cults and he, he gave, I, I think he gave me two stars on Amazon and uh, his thing said, I'm obviously showing my politics and, I don't think he even read a book, to tell you the honest truth, but uh, what are you going to do, you know? So, yeah, so that's where American cults came from. <laughs> and he also wrote a book called uh, Censoring God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one got me in some trouble, too. Um, uh, for, you know, for 50 years, I've been studying how the Bible got put together. And uh, obviously, you know, the Bible was not written by a single author. It was not written. It was written by groups of many different writers. Most of them, we don't even know their names. But when it came time to put the books together, they were put together by a committee. Well, you know what committees do, <laughs> especially the, the New Testament, for instance, was put together by a, uh, a group of uh, people who met in committee up in uh, up in Turkey. And uh, it was put together during the time of Constantine's, uh, Constantine in the third century for a particular reason. Uh, Constantine was looking for some way to unify his empire. And so he uh, got together the idea of doing it through religion. And so if he was going to have all the people in one religion, then they could be, you know, they were, we went all the way from what is now the UK over to the Far East, you know, and how could he keep them all together? They didn't speak the same language. They didn't have a common history. So we figured, well, I have a common religion. So the group at Ephesus that met up there decided for sure that they were going to put together a book 
that would unite this whole religious thing. So the group met, and uh, over the course of oh many, many months, they decided which books agreed with their agenda, which was a political agenda, and which didn't. And so what they did was they brought together the books that we now call the New Testament, and they got rid of the old ones. Matter of fact, they ordered them burned. Um, thank goodness that they didn't all get burned. Some of them, for instance, were hidden in the desert in Egypt and uh, only discovered in 1947, I guess. Um, they discovered a whole bunch of new books of the Bible that, uh, that were scheduled for the Bible that were considered by the group at Ephesus, but rejected. And when you read them, you can understand why they were rejected, because they didn't agree with Constantine's politics. Uh, they, they didn't agree that, uh, for instance, uh, the the bishops had the idea that um, if anybody was going, wanted to go to heaven, um, that they had to go through the church. They had to go through their own bishop, and that gave the bishop a tremendous amount of temporal control. Uh, you know, you can do it my way or you go to hell, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so I wanted to write a book that brought all this out in the open. And so I wrote Censoring God, uh, and it was mostly about the books that didn't make the cut. Um, even what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, a lot of people figured that they were all written before the time of Jesus. Well, they many of them were, but many of them, uh, they weren't put together until maybe a 100 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, and uh, they met at the town called Jamnia, according to history, according to the mythological history. They met in the town of Jamnia, and they decided which books were going to be included and which books were going to throw out, be, be thrown out. If there was one time in history, I wish I could go back to the town of Jamnia at that time and look in their wastebaskets and see <laughs> what they threw out. But uh, it 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 didn't help them in the long run because in 1946, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And up in the Dead Sea, up above uh, the Dead Sea outside of uh, Jerusalem, lo and behold, we discovered this great cache of documents which um, was hidden, buried rather than being destroyed. Uh, and uh, so now we know a lot of the books that didn't make the Old Testament, too. So now that in our generation, since I was born, I was born in 46, and these discoveries were made one in 45 and one in 47. So it almost seemed as if I was somehow destined to write a book saying what books were thrown out, what books never made the cut when the Bible was put together. And that's where censoring God came from. But, of course, that also brings on a lot of anger because, you know, people like to believe that the the Bible was, uh, no, no question about it, the Bible was authored by God and the books we have are God's and no more, no less. God said it, I believe it, and that, that settles it, you know, that kind of thing. So I wanted to write that book, too. And that book has been a little more successful than American cults because I think a lot of people today are getting more used to the idea that the Bible is not quite uh, the document that we always claimed it to be, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, and what is uh, a principal difference between religion and spirituality? Can a person be both at the same time? I think so, uh, but I do like to keep them apart. To my way of thinking, when you go back and look at the founding of the world's great religions, especially the monotheistic religions, when you look at the founders, when you look at Moses and Jesus and Muhammad, uh, when you look at Confucius and Lao Tzu and the Buddha, um, they all had at the beginning, sometime in their life, a spiritual revelation. 
uh, and it, it, it was spirituality in a nutshell. They had a different way of seeing life, a different way of understanding who God was. Um, the Buddha, for instance, uh, had his great knowledge under the bow tree, the tree of knowledge. Uh, Jesus went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness herding sheep when finally God spoke to him at the burning bush. Uh, Muhammad used to go out and, and meditate and pray in uh, a cave um, outside of his town. And eventually he saw the angel Gabriel, he said, who came to him and said, right, and the result was the Quran. These people had a spiritual experience, and they came back and tried to explain that. And in explaining, they excited a group of followers who started following these people. And then those followers became the start of the systematizing of the original spiritual vision. So that years after the founders were were gone, the followers had built the infrastructure of a religion based on that original uh, spiritual uh, almost a shamanistic, I think, experience. I think you could all say that they all had a shamanistic experience, similar to what I had here in the woods myself. Um, and what, similar to what, uh, priests, uh, it seek when they go out on, uh, retreat and when they take vows of silence or, uh, anything like that. What holy men and women have tried to do, get away from the world, get out there and be by yourself and spend Hours and hours in meditation and prayer and in contemplation. And they had that spiritual experience. But then along came the followers and they were the ones that established the doctrines and the dogmas and they built all these fences to the point where now almost any religion you choose, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam or even Buddhism, even Hinduism nowadays, which was pretty open at the beginning. <laughs> uh, they they built up these this this fence around the believers, and they say, "This is what you have to do. You have to live like this. You have to give this much. You have to believe this. You have to at least say you do. You have to you know, live a certain way." And those are the religions that grew up. I think if these founders came back, man, if Jesus came back or if Moses came back today, looked around. He would say, what have you guys done? You know, this is not what I had in mind. Uh, and one only has to read the Sermon on the Mount and listen to the words of Jesus about blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who give, um, blessed are those who forgive. And look at the Christian church today when it's just criticizing this person and that person and fighting. And I hear preachers say things like, uh, uh, you got to have a Bible in one hand and a loaded gun in the other. What would Jesus say to that? Come on. You know, that's crazy. So the religions have gone far afield. So I I believe you can be spiritual and still stay within a religion, which is why I, I still consider myself a Christian, even though I'm looking at Christianity much more metaphorically rather than historically. Yeah, you can be spiritual and be religionist, but there's a lot of people in religions who are not spiritual at all. And that scares me. Now, and what does it mean to be a spiritual seeker? Looking for the other, looking for that which is beyond ourselves, looking for uh, the source of our being. Over the last, well, 20, 30 years, I, I've come to believe that we are all here because we come from what I call the source. You can call it God if you want. Uh, picture the source 
as a place of perfect stillness and perfect oneness and perfect unity, uh, love, compassion, all of that stuff is there. But what's the one thing you can't have in a place of perfect unity? You can't have individuality. You can't have individual ways of thinking because the source, everything is united. So I've come to believe that each one of us has made a courageous decision to be born uh, in a world of duality. We enter here through various uh, fields. We come through what Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein call the mind of God that begins to conceptualize um, possibilities. We come through the Akashic field, which is the place of potential and possibilities. We we enter into um, another field, which is practically pure energy. And from that energy, uh, the equation of Albert Einstein says that energy and mass are the same thing. But uh, how does energy become mass? Well, it goes through the newly discovered Higgs field until it comes out here into our particular place where we all live right now. And out here in this, out on the rim, so to speak, on the field of in this field of um, perceptions, in this field where we are uh, experiencing individuality, something we can't have in the source. And we have these experiences, and I think these experiences are recorded. Um, we we learn what it is, and it, there are some wonderful, wonderful things about individuality, but there's also some, some bad things about them. Uh, we understand what greed, for instance, is, and we understand how ego can run amok. I think uh, Buddha had the best way in, in Christianity, for instance, and in, I guess, all three of the monotheistic religions, uh, we're all taught that there is good and there was evil. Well, those are two polar opposites. They're poles of a duality that we can only experience as individuals. We can experience good and evil. But the Buddha, uh, in, in, in the monotheistic, monotheistic religions, we're told that really what we need to do is identify with the good and try to reject the evil. Uh, you can see it, the uh, the old cartoon of a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, you know, that kind of thing. And we're always taught to uh, to, to do the good and reject the evil. Uh, I think Buddha had a much better concept of this. He His dharma, his teaching, was to find the middle way, the middle way through between the two poles, the way that experienced them both, both good and evil, because they're all part of life. And I think that's what we're doing here in this life. We have come here to experience both poles of a duality and to live this life. I find a great comfort in this because I know that when life is going bad and when everything seems to be against me or my friends or loved ones or someone, I know that it's temporary and I know that there's a reason for it. There's a purpose for it. And our job is to experience it both uh, fully, to embrace it. And uh, that's not to say, you know, just to simply expect, you know, uh, you know, accept all, even though it's evil or it certainly doesn't mean to do evil, but it means to experience it. Because I know that our, one of our purposes of this life is to take these experiences back with us and to deposit them in that great, uh, the Christians call it the book of life or scientists might call it the Akashic field. Um, Stephen Hawking was very careful to say that, you know, nothing can escape, uh, you know, no information can escape it, 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 even in a black hole, you know, it's, it's imprinted someplace so that everything we do here, whether it's good or bad, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced it has meaning. It has purpose. That's why we're here. And it gives me a great deal of, uh, a great deal of comfort in that. It really does. 
Can you talk about the unique opportunities that each unfolding decade uh, offered to a spiritual seeker such as yourself? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I was really uh, uh, able to discover a very privileged childhood. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, of course, but I was white, middle class, maybe even a little upper middle class. I was out in the suburbs. Um, back in the 50s, 90% of people in the 50s were said they went to church. So everybody I knew went to church. Uh, and if you were going to be a spiritual seeker back then, you you went to church and you listened to the sermon and everything else. And, and the 50s was a very privileged uh, time as long as you were white, at least middle class, and uh, and and raised with you know, in a somewhat stable family, if there is such a thing as a stable family. And, uh, but as I look back on it, I realized the fifties, I, I look on it now and it, it, I picture a, a, a beautiful pond, for instance, it's nice and serene on the surface and the sun is shining and there's maybe a duck floating around. The lily pads are opening up and, oh, it's gorgeous. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. But if you put on a snorkel, and go under underwater, you see something different. Big fish are eating little fish, uh, and all those beautiful stuff that falls in, on the pond is leaves and things. They're they're coming down. They're making muck and mire, and you can get stuck down in there. And that's what the fifties was. On on the surface, as long as you were born into a family that had some money and loved you, it was a pretty placid thing. But underneath, there was all kinds of Oh, sexism and racism and uh, all kinds of bad stuff going on. So during the 50s, when you went to church, uh, you'd go to church on Sunday and listen to the preacher and say the prayers and sing the hymns and figure, there, I've done it. That was spiritual seeking, you know, basically. You might ask some questions at a prayer group or something like that, but it was just mostly a matter of saying the right things and status quo. But all that underneath stuff that was bubbling around that wasn't obvious Man, that broke up in the 60s, and uh, I was in high school and college during the 60s, and I can tell you, all that placid stuff that we experienced during the 50s, that fell apart. Beatniks turned into hippies, and uh, the Summer of Love, and Woodstock, and uh, LSD, Tune In, Turn On, Drop Out, um, all of that, the structures of the 50s were thrown off in the 60s. So to be a spiritual seeker in the 60s was a total different experience. You'd probably wear your hair long, grow a beard, uh, sing the right songs, play the guitar, listen to Bob Dylan, you know, and, uh, and later on the, the other groups that came along. And um, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear a flower in your hair. And that, you know, they, they were spiritually seeking something in the 60s. It was all summed up uh, that great, great sitcom, uh, Archie Bunker's Place. You know, Archie Bunker was uh, the the status quo conservative and his son-in-law, Meathead, was the liberal. And they would fight and fight and fight and everything else And during the 60s. So during the 60s, with all of that stuff going on, the political conventions and the marches and the Jim Crow laws and all of that stuff, when that was breaking loose, I was thinking, wow, this is going to change things. But lo and behold, along came the 70s and all of our heroes fell apart. They all, they all, you know, Nixon and, and Vietnam and disillusionment and, uh, um, the religious leaders during the 60s uh, fell down, fell down by the wayside. And we know what was going on in the Catholic Church with some of the priests during that time. The whole thing. But during the 70s, 
man, all of our heroes had feet of clay and we didn't know what was going on. Uh, everything was, we just wandered to be a spiritual seeker in the seventies. Um, you didn't know, you didn't have anybody to follow anymore, it seemed. And then along came the eighties and it got even worse. We became what we despised. We all became greedy and hippies became bankers and lawyers and making a good living and all that kind of stuff. And so the 80s became a very commercial, economic, greedy kind of time when all of a sudden the God was pushed aside and a spiritual seeker started, was one who just made money, you know, that kind of thing. And so again, when that all began to fall apart after the, the big crash in the 80s and everything else, in the 90s we just went around searching for hope. And we said, well, maybe the change of millennia would, would do something. And along came the year 2000. We thought maybe now this is going to change because the Y2K and uh, the Mayan calendar and everything else seems to symbolize we're on the cusp of something different. And we began to look for help from outside. And during the, the, um, during that time especially, the UFO movement just went crazy because we were just almost hoping that maybe there are some good aliens out there who learn better and they would come down and save us. Or maybe Jesus would return and save the world or something like that, you know. But when 2000 came and went and nothing basically changed, we come to the 21st century where we are right now and I don't think in my 77 years I've ever seen people who are more confused and less certain, less certain of what's going on. And, uh, we've all got these little groups going. Uh, there's the, the new agers or what used to be called new agers have their way of looking at things and people looking to all of these different things trying to find the, the answer. And meanwhile, uh, we're so busy just trying to make a living. You know, in my time, one man could go out and work at a company someplace for Ford and General Motor, and one salary can come by and it would, it would support a family out in the suburbs with two cars and a nice vacation every year. Now, husband and wife working as hard as they can, they can barely make it go. A full tuition scholarship to Eastman School of Music, where I went, where I went to school, uh, in 1964, I won a full tuition scholarship. And uh, for four years, cost $8,000 in tuition for four years. And now I had a meeting last night, a Zoom meeting with some of my old trombone buddies. And I asked if anybody knew what it cost to go to that school now. And uh, tuition alone is more than $50,000 a year. And wow. I'm just, I'm just by myself saying, whoa, what is going on? You know, uh, everything has changed. Everything is different. And I, how do you live in this world? A kid goes to, wants to go to college to get a college degree, and he knows he's going to spend the rest of his life trying to pay it back. Um, a person wants to buy a house, and they, they know that they're never going to get that mortgage paid off in their lifetime. And it's all built upon on this shaky ladder that it's got to keep growing, it's got to keep getting bigger or else. And there is a limit to growth. This is a very difficult time in which we live. A spiritual seeker in this day and age is very confused. The only way I could find my way was to drop out and go out to the woods and get away from it all. And even even then, it, I can't do it really all the time. I have to keep getting back into the world again. And it's it's very, very difficult. Now, um, now you mentioned all these decades. Uh, do you got a favorite decade? A favorite decade? Yeah. No. 
<laughs> I, I have to say, uh, being a spiritual seeker sounds like such a wonderful thing. Oh, you're seeking that which is good. You're seeking the other. You're seeking God. You know what you get out of it? Depression. Because it's depressing out here on the edge. Uh, you know that things could be so much better. Uh, just it, it's a simple, simple little thing. I mean, look at all the the money we're playing, paying, for instance, for things like armies and uh, navies, and uh, for police and all the rest of the things. Look at all the money we have to pour into that, and uh, the lawyers trying to legislate things, politicians trying to make laws to make sure that everybody does what's right. There's a simple way to make the world a wonderful place to live, and that's that if every single one of us would just make a decision right now to do the right thing every time, the world would be a better place. We wouldn't need any of that stuff. But you know it's not going to happen. Uh, we, are a, we are a fallen, fallen race. I think Christianity is right in that regard. That We all seem to be under this original sin of, you know, make it for me, greed and anxiety and, and sickness and the day you're born is the day you begin to die and unfortunately spirituality a seeking out of spirituality reveals all this holds it right up in front of your face and uh, you put it all together and it's it's a difficult life to be a spiritual seeker it, it's much easier in some ways if we could just kind of ignore it and get through it and a lot of people live their lives this way Get through it and don't think about it too much. Uh, just, you know, do what's here and do what you can and get out. But a, a spiritual seeker is always saying, but there's got to be something more. Life has got to be better than this. We can't. I mean, we're sending out all these, these spacecraft right now, the James Hubble telescope and everything else, and searching for life out there in the cosmos or the, um, the, uh, spaceships that we send out with these rovers that just go out and look and with the whole idea being man if we could only uh reach out there into the stars and find somebody else why in heaven's name would anybody with half a brain out there in the universe if they're spiritually mature at all why would they want to import humanity's evil like we have produced here on this planet why would we want to project ourselves uh, into some other society that has it all figured out. Take advantage of them, you know? Uh, and, and, and we're even so negative that people like uh, Stephen Hawking were saying it's, it's not a good idea to advertise that we're here because somebody may come along and, and uh, you know, try to take advantage of us or try to take advantage of our resources. See, we're taking our greed and projecting it out there to somebody. We don't even know if they're there or not, but we're projecting our greed, our shortcomings, onto some alien race that this is the way they might act because this is the way we act. So when you act, ask, was there a favorite decade? No, no, there really wasn't. Uh, I don't see any difference at all. I really don't. Now, and what do you think are the most important things to spirituality uh, today? Well, I can probably, I can probably do that best by defining what uh, what the the bad things are. Um, division, for instance, we have lost the ability to be able to talk to each other. Now we're just fighting with each other. I remember the days, oh, back in the 70s and 80s when I was up in Massachusetts and we had the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, and he was a radical left-wing liberal, you know. 
classic old school liberal. And he got to Washington and he was always on the, the right, the left side of every issue. And then along came Ronald Reagan from California and he was the arch conservative. He and Tip O'Neill didn't agree about anything. They were totally worlds apart politically. And yet at the end of the day, those two guys had such respect for each other. They could kick back, put their feet up, pop open a beer and tell each other Irish stories, you know. Uh, they disagreed about everything, but they had respect for each other. And so they could get along with each other. Uh, nowadays, we, we seem to have lost that. So division is, is the biggest problem, I think, although there are others. And just a busyness and noise and confusion. Uh, you can't hardly get alone nowadays. A person wants to meditate, and after 10 minutes, they want to check their cell phone, you know. Uh, it's so important that we all get plugged in and we all know what's going on. And the noise that's out there. Um, I go out on my front porch right now and sometimes at night, man, you, you don't hear any sound of people at all. You sit out there and all you can hear is the crickets and the, um, you know, the tree frogs and all that kind of thing. You don't hear any cars. You don't hear people. You don't hear any confusion. You don't hear any slam banging and all that kind of stuff. And just the confusion of, of how to live, uh, you know, for instance, everybody's is tied into their cell phone. Nobody knows how a cell phone works. I mean, we know how to push the buttons, but come on, you tell me, you push a button and you say, well, this, that's how you make it work. You just push this button. No, that, that sends a signal out into some tower someplace and that tower sends it up to a satellite and the satellite punches it down to a server and the server connects it to somebody else's cell phone so they can talk to you right away. Who understands that? You know, something goes wrong and we're hopeless. We had a power blackout here in South Carolina a couple of days ago, six hours, and people were panicking because we didn't have any power for six hours. It was two hours into it before I even realized the power was out, you know. And with that kind of confusion, how can you grow spiritually, really, when you don't know what's going on? And, and there's only, there's only one, one more thing that, and, and this really bothers me, especially as a writer, an impediment to spirituality, really, is our lack of focus. Um, I used to read books, like, I, I'd be reading all the time. Now I watch television. Uh, I used to read four or five books a week. Now people are sometimes don't even read four or five books in a lifetime, you know. Um, it, it, it's the kind of thing that, that we can't focus long enough. We can't even sit down. And, it's very difficult to even have a, a, a decent conversation. If anybody out there questions this, I, 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 if, if, you're, if you have never tried meditation, I dare you to go into a room, turn off everything, and sit there in perfect quiet, and just meditate for half an hour. I bet you can't do it. Your mind is going to be running off and fo running off here and running off there and doing everything else. And so I don't know that you put that together with we have lost our elders. Um, basically, tech rules nowadays, and elders don't keep up with tech. Not just because they can't, but most of them don't want to. I don't want to. I I have to in some ways, but. I mean, it took us 10 minutes just to get this interview going because I couldn't figure out my tech, you know. Uh, so so what happens? People listen to, they don't listen to elders and the wisdom that they've accumulated over a whole year or a whole life. Instead, they just offer to people who know things, knowledge, you know, uh, serious discussions about the future. Um, elders can see long-term trends. Young people can't. And so... Uh, 
when I was in college, I had, I, I looked much because 18 years old, right out of high school, come and take my course in world religions. But along with that, I'd had people who were 80 years old who just wanted to come back to school to learn stuff and they would monitor the classes. And I'd call a coffee break and I'd watch them gather. And here's a group of 18 year old kids sitting around talking to people who were 80 years old, sitting at the same table, having a cup of coffee together, talking to each other with that, you know, 60 years between them. And they were listening to each other. Now that's somehow we got to get back to that, but it's very difficult, very difficult. Absolutely. And you just answered my, my next question about the wisdom of the elders. So, um, I'll let you get any more to add to that. Well, um, it, it kind of sounds self-serving because I find myself an elder <laughs> now. And, uh, let's, let's face it. Most people don't really want to, you know, I mean, I have some very wonderful fans and people write into my website some very good stuff. And I, and I really appreciate that. But I have a lot of, you know, people who obviously haven't read any of the books or have, or they hear five minutes of a conversation in a podcast and then they write some kind of a thing, you know, because everybody's a, uh, able now to reach hundreds of people on their social media. And, uh, and, and I, I'm not saying that I have all the answers. I don't probably don't have any of the answers. Yeah. When I was younger, I used to know all the answers. Now I don't even know all the questions, <laughs> but there is something about that old idea of getting together at night around a campfire in your tribe and listening to the elders tell the old stories. And it gave you a sense of grounding. Who am I and where are we going? And uh, I think that was important and we've lost that. Now, um, and you also like bike trips, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a long-distance biker all my life. Uh, yeah, I've, I've ridden cross-country uh, twice from uh, the Pacific to the Atlantic and uh, from Florida up to Massachusetts. And I love biking rivers, so I bike the length of the, oh, St. John's down in Florida and um you know, different big rivers around the country and everything else. And I, I bicycle along the edge and uh, gather the history as I go and talk to people and stopping at the coffee shops. And uh, I, I love long distance biking. The last one I did, the last big bike trip I took uh, wound up as a book called Savannah. Matter of fact, we're just bringing out the second edition of that. Uh, um, um, I think it may be out right now, as a matter of fact, come to think of it. It would be, be on my website if it was. It was a, a story of uh, bicycling. I call it a bicycle journey through space and time because on a bicycle you have a lot of chance to think and a lot of chance to put ideas together and to contemplate things. And it's almost like Zen, you know, the, the repetitive of the pedals and everything else. So I wrote this book called Savannah, um, a bicycle journey through space and time from the source of the Savannah down to the sea. And, uh, that was a, that was a fun bike trip. Now, um, how, how, when you're in South Carolina, so you get, so are you getting any of this hot weather? Oh, sure are. Uh, <laughs> it's up way up, way up in the nineties as we speak. And today is supposed to be one of the coolest ones we're going to have. Yeah. We're getting a lot of the hot weather. On the other hand, I've been talking to people up in Michigan and they're getting the smoke from Canada. So, I don't know which is better. And then I have friends in uh, Vermont who are flooded out of their house, you know, so it's a, <laughs> it's a tough summer. 
Yes. Now, and where can people find your books and learn more about your ideas? Uh, probably the best way to do it is just go to the website, www.jimwillis.net. And uh, that'll take you to the home page. And on the home page, there's also a link to my Facebook page and my video, uh, my YouTube page. We're putting out um, videos. Oh, a couple, couple just came out recently uh, on some of these same topics that you and I have talked about. But uh, all the books are listed on my web page. If you go to the the uh, page that says uh, books, and uh, if you just click on the book, it'll bring up where you can buy it so through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Target or Thrift Books or something like that. Um, or sometimes it takes you to the publisher, for instance, if anybody's interested in Cosmo and me, uh, you can get it through, uh, the, through my website. If you click on it, it'll take you to Uncle Bear, who is the, uh, the publisher. And, um, matter of fact, uh, they're just getting started. Uh, mine was the first book they, uh, they published. I was very, very honored by that. Uh, and, but that's the place to start, jimwillis.net. And also a very important part of that webpage, there's a contact page. You know, you and I can talk to each other and, uh, we don't know who's listening because we don't know who's out there. But if people want to get in touch with me, I love to hear that there's somebody who heard it or had some ideas or agreed with this or disagreed with that. Um, and you can just go get, reach me through the contact page. And I'm still to the point where I can still answer just about everybody's uh, email. All right. Now, uh, um, at the end of every episode, which I always ask my guests this question, um, do you get any closing thought or a closing statement that you want to tell the viewers? Wow. That's a pretty <laughs> heavy question. Yeah. Yeah. Look up, look out, but also look in. Uh, your answers, no matter how impossible it seems, no matter how difficult your life may be at this time, um, the answer is not going to be found from outside. It's going to be found from within. God is within. The source is within. You're a part of that source. You're you're a very important part of the universe. Uh, and um, the answer is in there. And sometimes the pain and the confusion can drown it out. But if you if you take the time to sit and meditate and contemplate and go within, um, you are the hottest commodity in the universe right now that we know about. And you can make it. You can do it. I think that's one of the best ones, you know, that I've heard in 20, uh, about 26 or 28 episodes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Now, Jim, oh, it's one of the things for coming on the podcast and to talk about cosmomy and the spirituality and us. Oh, which of course was some of your new books, you know, that you put out. I was, yeah. you know, which I appreciated. Well, thank you, Jacob. It's always it's really good to talk to you, and I hope we can hope we can do it again sometime. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. You know, maybe we could do it again uh, whenever you want to. You know, you know. Well, again. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what. I got a new book coming out next year called uh, I, "It's on Near Death Experiences." We'll make sure to contact you, and we can oh, we can sure. talk about some uh, wonderful experiences I've had with people who have died and come back. Oh, you, uh, sounds like it. Uh, you know, sounds like a date. You know, you know, well for me especially. But anyways, I want to thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Conversations with Jacob with my guest, uh, Jim Willis. Uh, even though he had camera issues, I think the interview turned out pretty good. So uh, so once again, Jim, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you, Jacob. My pleasure.
All right. So tune in next week for another episode of Conversations with Jacob. Until then, God bless, and we'll catch you down the road.